Rick Madison and Scott Lanigan, chair of Central Okanagan Journey Home Society, delve into the problems surrounding Kelowna's homelessness issue and interview community stakeholders to discover possible solutions. So welcome and welcome to you, Stephanie Ball, ED of, let me get this right. You got this. I'm so proud of you. Let me get this right. Central Okanagan Journey Home Society. In one. Absolutely. And of course, uh, we can't leave behind our good friend Scott Lanigan, president of the Central Okanagan Journey Home Society. I thought you were just going to leave it president of the Central Okanagan. And I'm not that, Rick, just in case our, our listening audience... All six of you are completely confused at what what that is. We're going to need a recount. That's all it is. Just like Trump. It was just, you know. Uh, I know. It was was the service. I'm starting my own website to uh, let people know about this atrocity. We'll be up to Scott Lanigan, president of the Central Okanagan. I can see the banners. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What font? Scott Lanigan certified. That's what I would have on there with a little thumb. So there's people listening going, okay, can we get on with this? I apologize. so there is uh, obviously Stephanie. You are very close to the homelessness in Kelowna and uh, the issue. And we're going to talk a lot about um, some of the initiatives that are working, some of the things that uh, you know are are in in construction, I guess you could say. But why don't you just give uh, the listeners just kind of a breakdown of for you what is the plan? Like what what is your day to day goal? Every day you get up and go to work, what is it for you? Um, for us, really, at, at Journey Home, because we don't operate direct services and programs, our role is really about bringing everything that exists in terms of resources and capacity across the community into a one-systems um, approach to planning and, and the way we support people across communities. So every day, uh, my colleagues and I from Journey Home get up with the view of Uh, looking at the spectrum of services and and how we can bridge the gaps that exist for people experiencing homelessness, how we can broaden our reach with community partners to explore better solutions for people currently experiencing homelessness, as well as really driving a focus towards prevention in our community, as that's something that um, has not been a priority in terms of planning in, in previous years. We've just been really reacting to the crisis that's been before us. So a lot of the work that we're focused on right now is on supporting broader populations and and really looking to put a dent in homelessness where we can um, for certain folks. So for example, right now we're focused very heavily on working with broader community partners with a view to end homelessness for veterans in our community within the next year. Wow, okay. So that's got a firm deadline to it too. Absolutely. We set a community goal uh, for March 2022 and we, uh, we're we certainly well on our way to meet that endeavor. Excellent. Okay. So, uh, and I, I'm going to put this out to both of you, Scott and Stephanie. Um, can you put a face, because I mean, people are listening to these um, to these thoughts. Can you just put more of a, uh, I guess, a face and a profile to who is who are we talking about when we talk about homeless? Yeah, I th- and I was just, it's a great question, Rick. <laughs> Oddly enough, I said that about Rick. Uh, but <laughs> Steph, I think you mentioned just veterans, and maybe some people are like, veterans? Like, you know, how help me understand that. And so I think it's a great question of just, w- you know, when we talk about, a, you know, the homelessness sector, and not only those that function from uh, service delivery, but also the the clients, right? What, 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 is your under, like perspective on who those clients are and what they look like in this community? 
Uh, just like any community, the people that experience homelessness in Kelowna look like everybody you see when you walk in the mall, when you walk in the park, when you walk down the street. Um, you know, it, it's it's a cross demographic of people that have experienced supreme trauma and poverty. So we have a lot of families experiencing homelessness, and I, I know you you guys talked about it in a podcast recently with G from our lived experience circle about the you know forty seven percent of households in the rental market in Kelowna that are in extreme and, and core housing need. And that right there is a determinant of future risk of homelessness for us. So we, we have families experiencing homelessness. Uh, we have veterans and, and veterans haven't historically been identified because it's not something that as a community we've asked that question and explored that with people as we've identified their experience of homelessness. And, and that's something that we're looking to work strong uh, stronger with community partners to identify exactly how many people that have ever worn a uniform are are experiencing homelessness or at risk of. We have a lot of youth in our community that are experiencing homelessness um, and COVID and the isolation and you know early months with families has just driven a lot of family breakdown which really affects youth and we've seen an increase of youth experiencing homelessness in our community in the last few years. Um, and at the same time, we've managed to divert nearly 200 youth from homelessness in the last couple of years through the resources that we have. But we do know probably 20% of our overall homelessness population are comprised of youth. We, we also know that there's uh, still a high over-representation of indigenous people living off reserve that are experiencing homelessness in our community. Um, and, and again, just, you know, single parents with kids, single women escaping intimate partner violence on their own, um, you know, men of, of all ages and, and a lot of seniors that, that we see in our community as well. So it's truly a cross-section of, of everyone. Woven into the strategy, the journey home strategy, are those perspectives of the indigenous lens as well as the, the youth lens. And they're woven right into the strategy of going, you know, it's not just a singular focus on, oh, it's this type of person that's that could be experiencing homeless or at risk of homelessness. It's actually, uh, just to Stephanie's point, it's very broad in its understanding. And, and some of it is hidden. And I think that perhaps uh, our listeners may not understand, like for students and for youth, uh, you know, couch surfing is popular. And so, you know, they're homeless, technically, but they're able to, to bum a couch off a, a friend or a family. And so, you know, we're, they're not seen necessarily, and they can go from couch to couch, couch surfing, if you will, around the city until they're not able to do so again. And so, you know, I think there's pockets where it's not seen as much because I, it's not the person with the shopping cart downtown. Right. It's, the, it's, it's the kid that's, you know, with a, but hey, can I bum a, you know, and I, I've worked with students for many, many years, and we had uh, my wife and I had uh, multiple kids that bummed a couch for a night uh, because they they just needed a safe space to be in. And we opened our doors for that. And, and we were actually, and this is, you know, 15, 20 years ago uh, in the uh, Fraser Valley where it was uh, it was prevalent then, you know, and it's in uh, that's why I, I, I love your perspective on that, that, you know, 200 uh, youth have found a, a, a residence, a place to call home. But they're still hidden uh, in those kind of layers that aren't seen necessarily. So, and thank you for illuminating for a lot of people, I think for me myself, uh, just, you know, you, you mentioned that person with the shopping cart downtown. And I think a lot of people might identify 
with that image of, okay, that's, that's what homelessness looks like. Because it is. I think there's different levels to it, of course. It's a very, you know, there's lots of different layers to it. Um, you have people that are on the cusp, and there are people living in, in uh, extreme housing and that sort of thing. So we talked about that in earlier podcasts. Now, the other question I have, and this is just something, um, where did the Journey Home strategy plan originate from? Because obviously it, it came from a place where we obviously it's needed, it's wanted. Um, but can you kind of explain, either one of you, Scott or Stephanie, of just how it came into being, because I think a lot of listeners might be thinking, okay, I've heard about Journey Home, but I don't really know, maybe just to give us a quick snapshot of its history into being. Yes, I uh, have been privileged to be part of that execution of that discovery phase of the plan basket back uh, a number of years ago, 2012. Uh, I can't, actually, I don't even remember. It's not even that long ago. 17. 17. Dang. <laughs> 2012 was, that was, sorry, I just had some bad guys. That was there. a year. That's what happened. Uh, 2017 or 2012. And um, we, it was uh, initiated by the city and they wanted to develop a task force from different sectors and they gathered these task force together. And, and really it was representative of our, as much of our community as possible. And, and then uh, from that, just the discussion started around how can we develop a strategy that's long-term and inclusive of all the things that Stephanie just mentioned previously. On top of that, uh, there was some consultants brought in uh, that had a national experience in homelessness and in coming up with community plans. And so we, we invited a consultant to guide us through the process. And then uh, throughout that, then in our community with different sectors, we invited them to learning labs where they could come and we could explore together questions that were facilitated by outside consultants of talking about the particular needs in, uh, you know, like the housing sector or in a technology or uh, in indigenous and, and youth focuses. And so all of those, that happened over a number of weeks uh, where then all that data was collected and then uh, the community was invited to engage with that data as they were presented, uh, to have Q&As through over the course of a number of, of months to be able to help us define a plan that was very specific uh, to our community, not one that was, you know, successful in Ottawa, and now we'll just try and plant that here. No, what are the specific needs here? And then uh, how can we appeal to those needs throughout this journey home plan? So it was a five-year plan that was developed with markers along the way. And um, most would look at it and go, is that even possible? Uh, because it is significant in its scope, and it needed multiple uh, partners in the sector to come alongside and say, hey, we have to have a collaborative approach to this or we will never be able to find its conclusion in five years, or at least we won't be able to have identified markers along the way. And and we talked in previous po podcasts about functional zero versus absolute zero, Rec, and that was really one of the primary perspectives in this of that functional zero, again, for our listeners, and feel free to expand anytime, Stephanie because she's way smarter than me. Uh, <laughs> that functional zero really is if somebody wants a home, we're able to guide them to a place where they can find a, a, a home. Uh, on top of that, they, they can find the resources necessary for something that they're they're experiencing at that time, and we can direct them appropriately within the sector to find that. Uh, versus absolute, absolute zero is really unachievable. That's like no one ever will be homeless again. And there's some that actually choose to be uh, not housed. There are some of those individuals, as there always is, you know, uh, that uh, don't necessarily want to have a place to live. And so uh, Journey Home uh, Plan takes all of those into consideration. Wow. Okay. 
turns out you know a thing or two about a thing or two. Uh, right? Well, it's just two. If you <laughs> asked me three rested. things, I'd be like, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so, so again, I guess what we're when when I read through the the plan now the initial plan, which I didn't. And this is just me being devil's advocate here, but I didn't feel like it had any any metrics and measurements yeah. as far as they didn't have any teeth to it, like as far as a functional plan. The second iteration, I think, I'm not sure if there was one in between, seemed like there was more check marks along the way of here's where we need to be, here's where we need to go. And there seemed to be, and, and I've always learned this, unless you can measure it, you can't manage it. So do you feel like we have enough data in order to build upon this, this functional zero we're shooting for? Uh, in, in short, no. No, I, I don't think we are at the place where we have the depth of data that we need. Uh, we've certainly worked tirelessly over the last 18 months to drive that initiative forward. When the initial plan was developed and, and the projections were made around how much housing we'd need and, and the estimates around homelessness in our community, it was done at a point in time based on the information that we had. And, and we know homelessness isn't uh, a linear or static evolution uh, across a community. And, and so we've worked very hard to create across community what we call a by names list which is that by definition, it is a list of every person by name who's experiencing homelessness in our community. And through that, it, it requires multiple levels of privacy considerations when we're asking uh, organizations like service providers uh, and government entities like BC Housing and Interior Health to share information about mutual clients. But we we really need to know who's experiencing homelessness and who they are and what their journey is to be able to inform the volumes and, and types of housing and housing with supports that we need to truly hit functional zero by 2024. So uh, Journey Home managed to, as a proof point, compile a by names list of data aggregated and averaged over three months for March, April, and May of 2020 last year. And at that point in time, it identified that we had 374 people experiencing, actively experiencing homelessness in Kelowna uh, and West Kelowna at that point in time. And so through that initiative, it's been the baseline of, of numbers that we've used for our community planning over the last year to inform how many shelters we needed for the winter season, which helped mobilize three new shelters in our community, as well as help inform other planning around overnight sheltering spaces and, and housing conversations and, and mobilization that we're doing around complex housing advocacy as well. So when we, it, it's not a perfect number right now because uh, again, we're working through privacy considerations with multiple levels of government as our desire is to continue to harness community level data, both on an individual level to support agencies to case do case management and, and housing work with people, but also so that Journey Home on a community level can measure the, the key performance indicators as a community. So as Scott talked about functional zero earlier, um, in, in the context of 
Kelowna, it's it's about having more housing stock and resources and being able to house people faster in a month on an aggregate level than people in a community are falling into homelessness. So when we talk about having achieved functional zero in Kelowna by 2024 on, on a population size of our community, we're talking about uh, no more than three people experiencing homelessness at any given time. Homelessness for us to be seen to successfully end it needs to be a brief, rare, and non-reoccurring experience for people. So, and, and that brings up another question um, that I've, I've heard it around, around the city, and I, I'd say that there are some camps that suggest it's, it's housing first, and other camps that say, no, it's treatment first. So do you have any thoughts in regards to that? Because like I said, that seems to be an ongoing discussion argument I do. I, I have I have so many thoughts on that. And, you know, I, I try not to dive too deep uh, into deep conversations around, you know, substance use and, and mental health. Um, but it is part of my, my background over the last 27 years. And, and certainly there is an intersectionality with with homelessness. Uh, when we talk about housing first, it's it's less of a model and, and more of just the philosophical belief that that housing is a human right. And recognizing, um, along with that context, what I what I like to bring people back to is the reality that the stats show us and the coroner's reports show us that most people that have substance use will never experience homelessness. Um, the same as most people who experience mental health needs throughout their life, which in, in a Canadian context is anticipated as being up to 50% of the population by age of 40 will have had a mental health experience, um, most of those people will never experience homelessness. And, and when we look at it in the context of most people in society function with uh, substance use and addictions in the context of housing and in the context of, of oftentimes being employed, it, it takes... The, the philosophy of housing first back to the basic notion that you can't um, consider addressing other aspects of your life. You, you, you know, some people may want to recover from substance use. Some people may just want to learn to manage it and function within it safely, um, like many people do in the general population. So, you know, for me, I, I always believe in a housing first approach because uh, people can't address any aspect of their life or self-actualization when, you know, your whole day is spent trying to maybe beg for a couple of dollars so that you can buy a coffee somewhere so that you have the privilege of accessing a washroom, um, you know, and, and where you're going to put your head that night. And if you do have a substance use appointment, where can you store your belongings while you go and access the interior health building and things like that. So I always, um, you know, I, I love the conversation about which comes first, but in reality, um, housing first truly is the, the only philosophy through which we can end homelessness. Well, thank you for addressing that. And, and so just pausing for, well, not really pausing for a second, but you're passionate about, I can tell, about, you know, being part of the solution for homelessness. Scott, you as well. Can you can you each just kind of share why you're involved with this, why you're doing what you're doing? Because obviously the, this work is not easy. There's a lot of volatile, um, I guess, feedback. That's the best way I can put that uh, in regards to homelessness. And, you know, it's, it's a very contentious issue. So, Scott, do you want to 
just tell me again why you you chose to be a part of this and and why because I you know good guy but <laughs> ruggedly handsome <laughs> well <laughs> you didn't have to and it's weird that you keep saying that but no anyway <laughs> um, but but just a sh- thought in your eyes <laughs> share again why you think this is this is what you like this is part of your legacy yeah it's- you know and Rick I I think you know. For each one of us, at times and in different situations, we can be great finger pointers and not good mirror lookers, if you will. In other words, it's easier to kind of point a finger at an issue or something that we see, something that we hear. And and oftentimes we just don't kind of take a look in the mirror and at ourselves and look at our own perspectives. And, uh, you know, there's uh, over the years, there's been adages about, you know, walk a mile in their shoes. And, and, and that was truly, you know, I, I, I've always been a people person, um, just, uh, you know, I'm an extrovert as most people would understand. And, and I love people, but uh, what I love about people is I I find intrinsic value in every single person that, that, that's my perspective. And so I believe they have an intrinsic value, no matter their circumstance in life, no matter, uh, their ethnic origin, no matter their sexuality, whatever it is, I just go, you've got intrinsic value. And because of that, Anyone who's experiencing homeless, I find the same perspective in them too. And so for me to just take a look in the mirror and go, what's my perspective? Because I, you know, hey, I, I've, I've pointed the finger just as much. I've walked by just as much. I've not acknowledged just as much individuals that have been um, in that place in their life. And so years ago, I took some students down to Seattle and we worked with um, some inner city organizations, specifically with uh, those that were experiencing homelessness. And it was it was a week that I, I, I basically lived on the streets with, with these kids and we interacted with uh, all sorts of things in Seattle and profoundly changed my perspective of, of who these individuals were and what they were experiencing. One of the things we had to do was uh, we were given, uh, there's a group of six of us and we were given $2 for lunch each that day. And so we had to find lunch, but this, the, the object was you got two bucks each for lunch, but you have to take somebody who's living on the street for lunch with you. And, uh, and so we, 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 we went and we invited someone on the street. We got rejected 12 times. It was really interesting. We finally found this uh, individual and this lady. We found her at a store. Her name was Bernice, and we took her for lunch, and we realized we we're going to have to toss in some of our own money, and we weren't allowed to buy our own lunch. It was only with the money we provided. So Bernice is the one that got to eat, and she shared her French fries with us. And, uh, and, then, and then she took off. And what we realized was what, what I saw, when the people said no, they still had pride. They, they, they still, there was something about them. I don't need these, you know, and all of us were Caucasian. I don't need these white kids. This one guy said, I don't need these white kids buying me lunch. I'm good. You know, and, and it wasn't because they were rejecting us. There was like, there was some pride. They were like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And, and I had one individual that said, hey, actually, I think they need it more than me. And it just, those, those instances changed my perspective completely. And then, you know, part of the early on in the journey home process, we featured a documentary by a Canadian filmmaker called Us and Them. And, and she just journeyed with some individuals in East Van who had experienced homelessness. And she just walked helped us walk in their shoes. And again, it was just this profound reminder that you don't know the stories. Uh, even those that live in a house that are, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, they're managing their addiction at home. They're not, you know, I wouldn't say they were homeless, so they're managing their circumstance. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of that neighbor approach. Not a lot, a lot of us know our neighbors really well, and, and we don't always know what the story that's going on for them. But when we find out, we realize, oh, they're a lot like me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and with those on the street, I realize they're a lot like me. Where can somebody access the us and them? 
Uh, I would have to follow up on that, Rick. I'm not sure if it's, uh, like, at, at times it's been able to be viewed because it's, um, uh, I know Journey Home early on had just paid the uh, licensing fees because there was licensing fees associated with it, and so we featured it a number of times. I, I'll try and get that information. Do you know any updated information, Steph? Not off the okay. top of my head, sorry. Okay. I'll see if we can find it. It's an exceptional document. We've featured it twice in our community and uh, had wonderful feedback about it, and um uh, I will get that information. I will make sure we have it for our next podcast. Counting on it. Okay. So thank you, Scott. That Interesting about the $2 and, and the lunches because, uh, oh my gosh. like It was rough. Yeah, it was great. Um, so Stephanie. U.S. It was $2 U.S. So it was like $18 Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Each. No caviar today. Uh, so so Stephanie, for you, what what is that that moment when you decided, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to go. And. This is the work I want to take on. Mine was uh, happenstantial. I, I fell into the sector, and I, at the time, I was I was very young. I was seventeen, uh, and it was really something that I wanted to do uh, until I had the. Or I guess I was eighteen. It was something I wanted to do as an opportunity to give back. Uh, as a teenager, I had a brief experience of homelessness as a youth. And much like we talked about earlier, uh, I was able to couch surf uh, for a number of months and, and stay in different places until inevitably I found myself without a place. And, and it wasn't until that point in time that I actually realized I was homeless. And, uh, you know, it was, through, it was through resources that existed in my community at that time that really put me onto a different path in my situation. I was pregnant at the time uh, that I was homeless as a teenager. And so, it, you know, when I look back at where my life trajectory could have gone versus where I ended up in the opportunities, it, you know, once I was back on my feet, I really wanted to give back to the sector as an opportunity, um, you know, to to give back really what I had been given and fell in love with the work um, and worked, you know, worked frontline and, and worked through a spectrum of, of different human services over the years and including mental health and, and addictions as well as brain injury and, and cognitive disability and then fully immersed over the years, uh, you know, specifically into the world of, of serving people that experience homelessness and homelessness prevention. And really what's, you know, I think I was a few years in and I realized I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing and that I, there's nothing else I could have seen myself doing um, in terms of just falling in love with service and serving people that have the most amazing resilience and the most amazing ability to get up every day no matter what's going on and just it it working in this space teaches you humility and it and it teaches you gratitude and you know it it's I've met the most incredible people and as much as you know working in this space we're often credited and and colleagues in the sector do phenomenal work but we're often credited for changing people's lives and saving people's lives and and while there's an element of understanding where that comes from really you know the work that I've done and, and the thousands of people that I've had the privilege of serving over my years really have informed my life and, and influenced my life so much that you know I'm 45 now I, I think about different careers at different phases of life uh, and I keep circling back to I do what I'm passionate about and I get up every day with the same level of energy and passion as I have for almost three decades, and it's just a phenomenal journey to be a part of. 
I think it's worth worth noting that Stephanie joined us from uh, previously to coming and arriving in Kelowna from uh, Alberta, where she lived between the two kind of the northern city and the southern city, Edmonton and Calgary, uh, in Red Deer. But she affiliated with that northern hockey team, the Edmonton Oilers. And I just thought that was worthy of noting here of just, you know, she had the opportunity to choose. And I was she starting said, you know, to I'm like, going to choose the city of champions. I was starting to like Stephanie. <laughs> now you've marred her. Because there's a southern city, which has a great hockey team, although not right now. <laughs> Almost <laughs> as good as the Oilers. <laughs> in previous years. Oh, my gosh. Um so uh, we'll, we'll try and wrap it up and, and, again, love to chat with you more about this and, and we should in, in further podcasts. But I, I am curious to know, um, biggest challenge that you think, uh, biggest impediment to that, you know, that number zero that we've talked about, what, in your eyes, what is that? I think it's it's twofold and, and both of those are, are things that are conversations in the works, but one is we cannot develop housing fast enough and we cannot identify enough affordable, sustainable housing in Kelowna. Um, we, we talk about the, the price and the cost of living here and, and that's, well, we recognize that nothing's being done to alter that course. And so as much as we can develop housing and, and house people, we know the inflow into homelessness is going to keep going at the rate that it has. So our ability to address the backlog of housing, wait lists and needs across community, the ability to have a, a, you know more landlords on board to provide supportive housing and, and incentives to do that those are really critical is is housing is really we we talk about supports which is equally critical but right now we don't have enough keys to front doors the other part um, that's really necessary in our community is recognizing the importance of wraparound supports that come with housing and especially in a Kelowna context if you become homeless um, chances are you're going to be chronically homeless because the wait for housing is quite long. And the longer that you're without those day-to-day -day routines of, that come with housing and housing stability, the longer, you know, the, the longer you're in that situation, the more uh, those skills become diminished and, and part of the past. So the, when we support people into housing, there's often a transition period and sometimes for, for long periods of time that people require supports. And and wellness checks and, and life skills and integrated health connections. And so that's something that, although we're working to build deeper bridges across the spectrum of supports and housing, that's still a, a huge barrier to some folks uh, attaining and maintaining their housing at present. Um, how can people listening to this, you know, there's going to be some people that just, they don't know how to help, they'd like to help, how do they help? There's so many ways to help. Uh, there's organizations who always need on-the-ground help. There's organize, Most organizations operate with a blend of paid staff as well as volunteers, and we always have a capacity shortage within organizations um, doing this work. And, and certainly donating towards organizations and programs and things like uh, rent supplement opportunities and to organizations like Journey Home, uh, you know, fiscal support is something that our community continues to need to continue to do the work, as does our organization. And, you know, as conversations I have at a lot of business group tables that ask me this is it's going back and recognizing in your own life and in your own influence in community, how can you be part of prevention? So I talk to business owners and 
and uh, people that employ staff and, and implore them to look at what they pay their frontline entry-level positions and look at the, the affordability margins within our community. If we know it, it takes $52,000 to afford a one-bedroom apartment, what is your receptionist who's a single mom making? And really ensuring that, um, you know, wherever people can be, they can be a part of the upstream prevention so that, you know, our overall poverty rates in our communities and, and in our province drop. BC has the highest poverty rates in Canada and has for, I believe, 13 years. Um, at the same time, it's it's a very wealthy province and, and we're in a very affluent and wealthy region and and I think there's a lot of capacity just within people that want to help to look at their own business models and to look at their own capacity to be a part of mitigating poverty and and homelessness altogether in the future. And I I would encourage people not to assume uh, that an organization in the sector needs something without asking them. I think that always the best mechanism is just to kind of find an organization that you align with from Canadian Mental Health to the Okanagan Food Bank to other different uh, organizations in the sector and just ask them the question, hey, wh- like, what do you need? And some of them might go, we actually don't need cash right now. We need you to help us out with this event we're hosting, you know, or they might say it was like Trevor mentioned in uh, one of our previous fo- podcasts that, for example, you could drop off a bag, uh, you know, a box of cans and that's lovely and needed and they're very grateful. But they said if you dropped off 10 bucks, it actually becomes 30 bucks for them because they have three times buying power. So you just got to ask the right questions and ask the organization. You go, oh, actually, our company can give you a check for a thousand bucks. I know it's not as, as fun maybe as uh, getting a bunch of cans, but in reality, we just give you $3,000, you know? And so I think it's just really smart to ask and don't fear asking because they gladly help you understand how you can get involved and jump in. And there is literally opportunities for every type of skill set. I think a lot of individuals go, well, I used to be a teacher. I, there's nothing I can do. Sure there is. You can maybe come alongside and help with individuals to write a resume or to, you know, get them a little bit of education, you know, or somebody's good at woodwork. Well, who knows? One of the organizations might need some shelves built for their office that they just can't afford, you know? So like I go, there's so many different ways to help. It's a good point because I think in that temporary shelter on the north end of town, People were dropping off blankets and a whole bunch of other things. And the bylaw people were hauling away thousands of pounds of, of materials every night because they just kept moving, like, the encampments and, and mobility, and they couldn't, like, there was a safety concern. Anyway, long story short is, yeah, check yeah. it out before, because there, there could be a very specialized way you could give, for sure. So I, I want to thank you again, Stephanie, uh, who has just been a wonderful way of giving us insight, I think. And and again, um, I think you mentioned it, Scott, uh, the amount of information is always going to be key for people understanding it and, and figuring out ways to help. So that's wonderful. So thank you, Scott, and thank you, Stephanie. It's You're been welcome. a pleasure. Oh, <laughs> go on. No, go on, Scott. Yeah, go on, Scott, as per usual. <laughs> Thank you for listening in on the Homeless in Kelowna podcast. If you have feedback, reach out to us via email, rick at tempestmedia.net.